I mean, you guys have a wonderful pastor. Uh, I know that he loves you uh, very much by the way he speaks about you, uh, by his, the choices that he is making to follow the Word of God. Uh, it is a great joy to come in and speak in his place. It is, a, it is a great honor. I want you to know that we pray for you uh, as a church. Uh, I'm so thankful to hear you pray for other churches this morning for our church. Uh, we rotate other churches in the area and pray for them, and so we've prayed for you on many occasions. And we pray God, praise God for what he's doing here this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51. And we do the same thing that was done for us uh, by another Nathan this morning. Psalm 51, we give the page numbers. If you're in your ESV or if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one in the front chair for you there. Uh, On page 474, you'll find Psalm number 51. And I assume this goes for this church as well. At our church, we tell people, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of these. We do that here, right, too? Just check it, make sure. Okay, if you don't have one, you can take one. It's not stealing. This church is giving them away, too. We're on the same page. Psalm 51 is where we'll be this morning. And the question that we want to answer this morning is, what do we pray when we realize our sinfulness before God? What do we pray to God when we realize our sinfulness before Him. W.S. Plumer said this about the Psalms. He said, in the Psalms, there is always something well-suited to every stage of religious experience and to every kind of degree of affliction. In other words, in the Psalms, there are prayers of sorrow, Prayers of great joy, prayers of excitement over God's love. There are psalms of mourning and sadness. There are psalms that are questioning why God has done what He's done. If you have ever had an emotion in your life, the psalms helps us put those into song, into prayer, and put words to our emotion. Maybe you have that one song in your life. You have that significant other in your life, and that song represents all that you could never say on your own to them. And so sometimes you might play that song to express the feelings that you have yourself, or maybe you've been driving down the road and that song comes on the radio and you think, that's exactly what I'm thinking. That song is exactly how I'm feeling. And so you roll the windows down and you turn it up and you let that song express for you how you feel. Or you keep the windows up and you cry. Because that song is expressing how you feel. The Psalms are that for us through all of our Christian life. They help us put words to emotions that we don't know how to put words to, and they inform our singing and our prayer. Psalm 51 informs this question, what do we pray when we realize our sin? What might we sing? What might we pray? How might we approach God when we realize that we have sinned against Him? And we'll see this in Psalm 51, where the second king of Israel prays this prayer. Some of you might already know Psalm 51 as the psalm that David prays after he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And for that reason, many people know Psalm 51 as the adultery psalm. And it's kind of labeled, I think, too often as kind of the psalm that David prayed when he got in really bad trouble because he did something that was really bad. And he was kind of fine all along, but when he did something really bad, well, then he was kind of trapped and had to go to God and take care of this really bad sin. But I don't think this is how David prays. I don't think this is how the Lord confronts David's sin. This is not how the Bible thinks about sin. James tells us in chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. The Bible will not let us hold one sin against another and say, I have committed these sins, but these sins are pretty common. It's not too bad. As as long as I'm not ISIS, I'm okay. The Bible won't let us think that way about our sin, and the Lord will not let David think that way about his sin either. Adultery was not the main thing that God had in mind when he came to speak to David. So you have your fingers in Psalm 51. Keep that there, but turn with me in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Keep your finger in Psalm, but go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and see the context for where, where does this come from? Where where is David praying from? What event in his life and how has the Lord responded to it? So in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, if you're in your ESV, that's page 262. 
I just want us to see the background for exactly, exactly what's going on that caused David to pray this prayer, what happened, what he did, what the Lord said, what our context is. So look with me in 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5, the background for David's prayer. 11, 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Well, this is a big event in David's life. This is the thing that many people remember about David. He was a warrior, and he had a thing for women. But when God comes to speak to David... He doesn't come and immediately say, David, you have done a grievous thing in committing adultery. He says something else first. In fact, if we continue reading in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we'll see that sleeping with Bathsheba wasn't David's ultimate problem before God. Once David found out that Bathsheba was pregnant, he knew that he had something to cover up. And so he decided to bring Uriah home and give Uriah some time with Bathsheba so that hopefully... That thing happens that when the husband comes home from war and the husband and wife get together, then it won't look like David is the father anymore. Only Uriah was too noble. He comes home and he says, there's no way I could go home and be with my wife when all the men are at war, so I'll just sleep on the porch and empathize with the men who are at war. David, frustrated with this plan, decides to bring him in, brings him into his house, brings Uriah in and, and gives him plenty to drink and sends Uriah home, liquored up, hoping that this time he will forget to sleep on the porch and go in and be with his wife. Except he doesn't do it. He stays at David's house and sleeps on the couch. He's one of those kind of guys. So David's plan is thwarted again. He decides, I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands more closely. He calls in the military. He sends out Uriah. He says, take Uriah to the front line. And we all know it so that he would be killed in battle. And it happens. Joab returns and says, Uriah has been killed on the front lines by the Ammonites, been shot with an arrow. And David says to Joab, as arrogant as a man could say, well, you know, Joab, these things happen in war. Men come, they go, they die. We'll move on. And 2 Samuel ends with this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. At this point in the story, all seems well from David's perspective. David has committed this sin, but he's covered it up with this murder, and no one will know. No one will find out. It's just going to continue to go along, and there will be no one to say that this is my child. Who would speak against the king? But the Lord knows. And the Lord sent someone to confront David. We move on to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We've seen the first few verses there that a, a prophet named Nathan comes to speak with David and he tells him a parable, tells him a story. He said, David, I want to tell you a story about a, a man who had many, many sheep. And in the same town, there was a one poor man who only had one little ewe lamb. And the man who had many sheep, he, he had guests coming to his house, but he didn't, want to, he didn't want to use one of his own lambs to cook a meal. He decided to take from this poor man his one little ewe lamb and use that for a meal to treat his guest. David was enraged. This is awful. Who would, would do such a thing as to take this poor man's one ewe lamb? Let it be that, that this man should die, and it should be repaid back to that 
poor man four and tenfold what he has been taken. And then Nathan looks at David and says, David, you are the man. You're the one that has done this to someone else. Now, if we read through the story, we have to think about the fact that we have gone a long way in the story. Nathan the prophet has come to speak, and we haven't heard anything about adultery yet. Not even anything about murder yet. Just the story of the one ewe lamb being taken in injustice. Continue reading with me in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and pick up in verse 7. 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. The Lord then speaks directly through the prophet Nathan, and this is what the Lord has to say to David once he realizes he is the man. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Stop for a moment. The first thing the Lord comes and says, David, I want you to remember I'm the one that put you here as a king. I'm the one that saved you from Saul. We could go back through first and first few parts of 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel. We will see that there are several times that Saul tried to kill David, but the Lord saved him from Saul so that he would be king. And the Lord, the first thing he does is remind David that he had delivered him. David, your sin has been committed on top of my deliverance of you. Verse 8, continue reading. And, David, God says, I gave you your master's house. I gave you Saul's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. David, you, you had wives, not just wife, wives. And I made a covenant with you. I, I made you king. I anointed you and gave you a nation. You were a king. Continue reading in verse 8. And if this were too little, David, David, I would have added to you as much more. I would have given you as much more. David, didn't you think that if you just, you didn't have enough, if you would come to me and ask, I would give you everything that you need? And more? Isn't this the heart of almost every sin? We want more. We're not full of gratitude for what we have. This has been the root of sin since the garden. God gave Adam and Eve everything you could possibly imagine. A kingdom, you would say. Making Adam a king, a ruler, the one who had dominion all over, over all things on God's behalf. Ruling as God's that's promissory over all of the earth. And what did Adam and Eve do? They looked at the one thing God had forbidden and said, we want something else. That's exactly what David has done. Continue reading in verse 9, what the Lord says next, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? David, the problem is not just that you had a feeling that you saw a woman, but you have despised my word, my instruction you've turned away from. You have hated it. My, my instruction, my guidance, my wisdom, you rejected it. And then continue reading in verse 9, 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, continue reading, and you have struck down Uriah. This is one of your own. This is your brother. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David, you didn't even do it with your own hand. You sent him to the enemy. I want us to see here that God saw beneath David's big sin. To see that underneath David had an ingratitude. David had forgotten how it was exactly he had been made king in the first place. David had forgotten, he'd lost in his mind that it was the Lord who saved him from Saul and allowed him to receive a covenant and anointment from the Father. And notice when God comes to speak, he starts with the murder of Uriah and then says, you have taken his wife. God is progressing back on his past word. 
through Nathan the story of the ewe lamb. You've taken his wife just like that man took that one little ewe lamb. That's you, David. You are the rich man who took the poor man's things. At the heart of this, David, is the injustice of your greed. This is why David prays the way he does in Psalm 51. Go back with me to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51, our text for the morning. When David comes to pray, he, he doesn't pray a big prayer that is, sorry, I got caught doing something really big and bad. He prays deeper. He prays from the places that the Lord revealed through the prophet Nathan. So this is what we'll do this morning in Psalm 51. We're going to look first verses 3 through 5, to see how this is David praying in response to the Lord. And then we'll come back and look at 1 and 2, and then 6 through 19. Look at Psalm 51, verse 3 through 5. You see that word for at the beginning of, of verse 3. I think this is saying this is why David's praying this prayer. This is why I start with this three verses. David's saying this is what got me into this prayer, to praying like this, for... So I said one and two because of this. Verse three through five, read with me. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, he says in verse five, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother Conceive me. Now, we will spend most of our time building to and building out of verses 3 through 5 this morning and finishing with the rest of the psalm. But this is how David responds to God. This is how David thinks about his sin after having it shown to him. David never mentions adultery. He never mentions murder in Psalm 51. But we know from the first verse that this is what he prayed after hearing from the prophet Nathan. This is what he prayed. David has an acute awareness that his sin goes far beyond any big, bad, ugly sins down to his very heart, down to his very nature, all the way back to his own birth. And we have to ask ourselves a very difficult question this morning. Difficult because it can be very difficult to accept the answer to what we might find, and sometimes very difficult to even discern ourselves. Now, Psalms are so helpful. We have to ask ourselves, how do we think about our sin? How do I think about my sin? What do I say to myself about my sin? Do I compare it to others? Do I think I've not done too many bad things so I'm okay? Do I think I'm living as a Christian? I mean, I'm here at church for crying out loud, so what can be so bad? Or are we thinking like David, who when shown some of his sin, comes to confess his utter sinfulness before God? Do you see the difference? One says, I have done a few things wrong. The other says, I am through and through a sinner. I am by nature a sinner. I've always been a sinner. I was laughing with my life group a few weeks ago about how children are born sinners. It was because during our life group, our children uh, were making noise and staying up late and couldn't get them to go to sleep. And so we were talking about Augustine's confessions and uh, making jest with them. But Augustine, if you've not read his confessions, has some profound thoughts and will teach us, if nothing else, we're not good at confessing sin as a culture. We just aren't. It's so good to hear some of the songs that we've sung this morning, so good to hear some of the texts that we've read, this long reading, Isaiah 63, praise God for a congregation who will sit and listen to God's Word, just read and listen to long prayers. 
But Augustine's confession will show us that largely in our culture, we don't understand confession. We have a minimal understanding of confession. In chapter 7 of his book, Confessions, his personal journal through confession, if you will, he has this chapter titled, Have I Ever Lived in Innocence? Have I Ever Lived in Innocence? And in this work, he says, this chapter, he says, I am unwilling to dwell on this part of my life, speaking about his infancy. I'm unwilling to dwell on this part of my life, O Lord, of which I have no remembrance, about which I must trust the word of others and what I can surmise from observing other infants. For it lies in the deep murk of my forgetfulness. But if I, and here Augustine quotes our text, Psalm 51, verse 5, he says, For but if I was as daily conceived in iniquity and in sin, my mother nourished me in her womb. He says, Where, I pray, O God, or when was I your servant ever innocent? Nevertheless, I must pass over that period for which I can do with a time from which I can. For what can I do with a time for which I can recall no memories? So listen to what Augustine is saying. Augustine is saying, God, I would confess the sins of my infancy if I could remember them. I don't even, if I could remember them. Listen, parents, you want to do your children a favor? Just write down all their sins for like the first five years. Give it to them later so later they can go, oh, now I know what to confess. Because Augustine is saying, I'm stuck, I'm struggling. I know it's there because I've seen infants, I've seen, you know, but I don't know what to recall. This is a depth of confession and thought about sin that I think does not very often come across the Western mind. Our culture instead is one where if you ask the average person walking down the street and too often us in our own churches, are you a good person? People will say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. And that usually is the case. I think most of the people we work with treat us fairly well. Most of the people in our families don't harm us. We would ultimately have a sinfulness conceived in the womb like every other person. Let's ask ourselves this morning, have we come to think like David and Augustine about our sinfulness? Have we come to understand the deep depravity of mankind? Have we come to understand that we are by nature children of wrath, as in Ephesians 2? Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 14. Romans 5, 12 through 14, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. He's saying the same thing in the New Testament, what David confessed about himself, what Augustine would later confess about himself, that sin has spread like genetic cancer from Adam and Eve to every human being, to every square inch of their posterity. Sin has gone along. And what Paul will go on to argue in Romans 5 is the way that we know that is even before the law, even before Exodus 20, people were dying. People kept dying even though there was no law to break at that point in God's revelation. We go to Genesis chapter 5. Adam and Eve had their sons, and then they had sons who died, and they had sons who died, and they had sons who died. It is a record that we are dying because of the sin of Adam and Eve, which we sin and we continue as well. When David confesses his sin before God, he gets to the heart problem, which is his heart. It was much deeper than I saw a woman and took an opportunity. Look there in Psalm 51, verse 6, he says, Behold, you, God, delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, do you hear that today? David is responding to God's word through Nathan, through the prophet. God revealed David's inward being. David, you've committed the sin, but I'm more concerned about what's on the inside that gave way to that in the first place. What was going on in your heart underneath, I saw those things. And that's how David can say in verse 3, For I know my transgressions, 
and my sin is ever before me. This is what God's Word does all the time. It reveals our sin. I think one of the reasons that people struggle to read the Bible as Christians is because it reads us, because it pierces us and it knows our sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, a passage that you may know well, says, For the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword and is able to pierce as deep as dividing soul and spirit and bone and marrow. And it, the Word of God, is able to discern the motives of men's hearts. The Word of God is able to get into our heart and say, this is what's really going on underneath the things that you're struggling with. This is the intention of the heart. Have you come to this place in your relationship with God? Are you still rather in the busyness of comparing your sin with other people's sin? Thinking of yourself, okay, because you are not as bad as others, are you able to come and say, I've got to own my sin? I have a heart issue with sin. And that's what I need to come to the Lord about, the things in my own heart. But how can we know? David gives us one indicator that he has come to a place where he has realized his own sin. One, he confesses it. But two, look in 51 verse 4. 51 verse 4. One indicator of your knowledge of your sin in your heart and your utter sinfulness is an awareness of God's justice. 51 verse 4, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. If you are still angry about God for what He has done to discipline you because of your sin, because of the wrath that He might bring because of your sin, we have yet to really sink and set in the weight of our sinfulness. But not David. David had come to the place where he realized his sin and said, God, you would be just to judge me. Your wrath is just on me because I'm aware of my sin. David Brainerd was a mission, missionary to the Northeast Indians. If you are interested, I highly encourage you to read his biography. After he passed away as a missionary, his, uh, what might have been, could have been, father-in-law Jonathan Edwards recorded his diary notes for us and passed them down. Missionary to the Northeast Indians in the 1700s, David wrote of one account of an old woman, an old Indian woman in a tribe who was particularly stirred by one of David's sermons among one of the villages. He recorded that she had great relief and deliverance from the spiritual distress that she had been under lately. And when he came to her and asked her how she found this relief, the Indian woman said, My heart was glad that Jesus Christ would do with me what he pleased. And she said, I did not care where he put me, whether heaven or hell, so long as I know he sent me there. I should love him for all. That's a snippet of a long section, but in other words, the woman had come to a place where she had a clear realization of her sin and God's justice to do with her what she deserved. Have you come to that place in your own heart? Have you come to your place in prayer to say, God, I fully accept that because of my sin, whatever you would give, whatever wrath you would bring, whatever death there would be, I deserve that. That's an indicator that you have gone past comparing your sin to others, gone past thinking that you're generally a good person and really come to understand what all of us need to understand is that we have sinned against God and that we are by nature sinners. You do not have to be a Calvinist to be a Christian, but one issue that some people have with Calvinism is that Calvinists believe God elects or chooses by His sovereignty whom He might save. And there is a a lot there. But we ought not think that way. Rather, we ought to think it is a wonder and it is a mystery as to why God would ever save any. And when you come to a place of realization who you are before God, that sin is a heart nature issue, 
of the Spirit and by grace, that's what we would say. Why would God save me at all? I've been in sin since the womb. Why would he save any? So let us think with the woman, the Indian woman, with King David, with Paul, and with Augustine, and God, that he is gracious that he should save at all. For we, like David, were conceived in sin, and we have our sin ever before us. So we see in Psalm 51, verse 3 through 5, that's David's thinking about his sin. That's what motivates him to pray the way he does. And the reason I've spent so much time on this this morning is because if we don't get a good grasp of what David says in 3 through 5, the rest of the psalm will have a very surface impact on us. Because this is where David's coming from. These type of thoughts about his sin. Look what he says, chapter 51, verse 1 and 2. His prayer begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. This is one who understands his sin. And this is how one who understands their sin would pray, God, have mercy. Please have mercy on me. David comes pleading for God to be gracious to him. You are the judge and you can cleanse. Please, God, take it away. Erase the sin from me. What a, what a faith and what a God to be able to claim to him. This is our hope in the church that we can go to God, look at him as judge, but know that the judge is the one who is willing to wipe away our sin. God is both just and the justifier at the cross, Paul says. He's willing to do away with our sin and get, and get rid of it and, and cleanse us of it. You might have heard of a sermon called The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God preached by the great awakening pastor that I mentioned earlier named Jonathan Edwards. And actually, Jonathan Edwards never was able to finish that sermon. We only have it because he preached from a manuscript. He got about halfway through his sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and he could not finish because the wailing and the weeping among the crowd was so great that no one could hear him. He never even got to the gospel application of that sermon, which is fairly famous today. In that sermon, Edwards says, There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. In other words, our hope is to come to God and pray for Him to be merciful. Be merciful. You are the sovereign over all things. Would you be gracious? Pray this way. David's teaching us how to pray. The Psalms are informing our prayer. Think deeply about your sin in your heart and then plead with God for mercy to blot out transgressions. Pick up in 51 verse 7. 51 verse 7. Look at 7 through 12 for a moment. He says, Purge me with hyssop, verse 7, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I think this is a beautiful picture. Why does he use the word hyssop here? It's only used a few places in Scripture. I think it's Exodus uh, I think it was 12, around the time of the um, Lord's, not the Lord's Supper, not the Lord's Supper yet, Passover. Uh, they used hyssop branches. They were instructed to use hyssop to paint blood across the doorpost. But also, if you go to Leviticus chapter 14, you will see that in the process for lepers to be pronounced clean among the people of God, they are instructed to take hyssop, dip it in blood, and have the hyssop branch sprinkled on them, I think it's seven times. And then they can be pronounced clean. Lepers welcomed back into the people of God. I'm, my best guess, and if, as well as a few others, would be that that's what David's referring to. This, this physical image of blood being sprinkled so that you could be pronounced clean. Purge me with hyssop. That, that picture of blood-soaked hyssop. And I shall be clean. I know that we have a great God to praise and that He is the only one. He is the only one who has the economy where red blood can make us whiter than snow. Purge me with hyssop. 
and I'll be whiter than snow. And know this, this blood that David might be referring to, it is ultimately, ultimately pointing toward the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. Lamb's blood will do no good. Hebrews says bull's blood will do no good for forgiveness of sins. But in Christ, his blood can ultimately and eternally do away with sin. Ephesians 1.7 says it this way, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What was one of the first lines that we sang this morning, church? Everyone needs forgiveness. Everyone needs forgiveness, and that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. We need that blood to cover us. We need the sinless, spotless blood of Jesus Christ spilt on the cross to cover our sin. And praise God that John tells us if we will come to him and confess our sins, that God is faithful and just, that he will forgive our sins. He will. If we come to him and say, God, have mercy on me, blot me out with the blood, Bible tells us that he will if we come in faith. Look what he says in chapter 51, verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That's a bold prayer. When you are in the moment of sin, let's just think of it this way. When you have a child and you have, they're in trouble, right? They've punched a brother or sister My kids have never done this. That's not true. They took a cookie out of the cabinet they weren't supposed to. You call them over there. They're crying. They're weeping because of what they've done. What would you say if your child said, Dad, just please restore joy to me? I think a lot of fathers would say, maybe later. Right now I'm going to restore something else to you, all right? But David has the gall and the faith to pray, Lord, let me hear joy and gladness. David, you just got caught in sin. Yeah, I know. I want to hear joy and gladness again. All the things that you've broken, restore them to me. Look at verse 12. He says it this way. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. The joy from your salvation, restore it back to me. Now here I think David is thinking again locally of what God told him. David, don't you remember that I saved you from Saul? Yes, God. Yes, I do remember that. Would you restore to me the joy of when you saved me? Maybe you have times that you can think of in your life where God saved you locally. Maybe you survived a car crash. I was at a funeral yesterday. A man who died in his 60s, and one of the testimonies at his funeral was that I think in his 30s or 40s, he had a heart attack, the kind that they call a widow maker, the kind that you don't come back from. And they said he had one of these, and he lived 20 or 30 more years. What a grace, what a salvation that the Lord would give him longer life. I remember my father telling a story about when he was a child going to swim at the beach. And he said he got caught in a riptide. And he had heard the trouble. He had heard that you can be dragged up to a mile out to sea in no time and never be found again. And they were told, watch out for riptides and, and be careful where you go. And he said, I got caught in one, and I felt it, but then I was quickly sped out by it. And he said, I felt, I, I can re- as he recalls it today, he can remember what it felt like to not be sucked in, but to be released, to be saved. And there's that, that joy that is a fearful kind of joy that, whoo, I'm saved, whoo, that was, that was close. And David says, restore that to me. Remind me of the joy of my salvation where you, God, are my salvation. And we might have all kinds of things that we could say we've been saved from in this world. Maybe we've been saved from a bad relationship, saved from some sickness, or even close call to death. Whatever it might be, how could those local salvations compare to the joy of knowing God has saved us from eternal death? God has ultimately saved us from eternal death by sending Jesus to die on the cross and raised from the grave so that all who believe in his resurrection would also be saved and live forever. Might we pray as Christians when we find ourselves in sin, God, restore to me the joy of Jesus' death for me. Restore to me the joy of the resurrection. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. I often wonder 
And I think that we go into sin because we forget we have an emptiness of the joy from our salvation. And I would say, you can write this down, take it to the bank, explore it in Scripture. I would say that a Christian is scarcely even able to sin. He is filled with the joy of his salvation. What would he want? What would the person who is filled with joy in Christ go after? He would already be full. What would David have gone? What would he have to do with Bathsheba if he were stopping for a moment and thinking about all the wives that he had? Thinking about God's salvation from from Saul. Thinking about having the kingdom. Thinking about the fact that God is so generous he would give him ten more times what he had. I don't think he would have wanted Bathsheba. God restored to me the joy of my salvation. He says in 51 verse 9, Hide your face from my sins. Don't look at my sins. Treat me as if I'm not a sinner. What a bold prayer to pray to God. And this is the gospel as well. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, our sin was put on him, and because our sin was on Jesus, the crowd, the clouds grew dark that day. God turned his face. That's because of our sin, Jesus said from the cross, why, why, oh God, have you forsaken me? Because of our sin. So we can pray with David, don't turn your face away from me, but we can pray that because God has already turned his face away from our sins in Christ and turned his face back in favor toward us through our faith in Christ who was resurrected through the dead. Chapter 51, verse 10, listen to this prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. It is interesting that David uses this word specific word create and the specific word for God. It's not an accident. The name here for God is important, although it is very common in Scripture. It's the term Elohim. Elohim. What is the first time that we see the words create and Elohim together in Scripture? In the beginning was the word, and the word was God. Then he created. He created. David is praying to the creator of all things, saying, Creator, please create Elohim bara. David is not just calling on God to acquit him in his court of law, although he is that. He's asking the creator to create a new heart in him. This ought to inform our prayer. God, create something new in me. Do something new in me. One commentator has said, if there is any greater exercise of power than that which brought all things out of nothing, it is that which brings a clean thing out of an unclean thing or makes a saint out of a sinner. God created me. Do a recreation in me. Change me. Pray for God to change you when you pray in response to your sin. Ask God to create something new in you. In Christ, we surely are a new creation. 51 verse 11, look there, cast me not away. Cast me not away. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. This is what God did with Adam and Eve. He cast them out of his presence. This is what the Lord did with Saul. I think think David here has a, a good memory. When Saul sinned against the Lord, what happened? The Spirit was removed from him. When Saul offered the unauthorized sacrifice, the spirit was removed from him. It was David who was in the court playing music for Saul, trying to bring his spirit back to to good health. David remembered that when you sin, the spirit of the Lord left Saul. And David prays, please, don't do that to me. As Christians, we have a great pleasure to know the spirit of God will never leave us. As we sang this morning, he will hold us fast. So it is for us both a request and a praise. Don't take your spirit from me. Don't don't take the the pleasure of the spirit from me. Don't, Don't leave the good graces of the spirit from me. Don't leave the power of the spirit from me. Keep me in the spirit, please, despite my sin. Look lastly in verses 13 through 19. Read with me. David says, then, then, When you do these things, Lord, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. 
You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, broken and contrite heart, which I've brought to you, Lord. And, O God, you will not despise. Verse 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. In other words, the temple will be doing what it's supposed to be doing. Our relationship with you will be made right for the way you have ordained it for us. And here is a sign that your prayer is one which truly has the whole redemption of God in mind. Uh, a new creation in us, a new spirit in us, a, a real turning around in us. And it's this, when we walk into prayer pleading the mercy of God and we leave it having prayed for the church. David walks in, please have mercy on me. But as he's coming out, he says, change me and I'll teach other people. Change me and I will praise your name, O God. And David's last thoughts are about the nation of Israel as a whole and praying for the people of God as a whole. God, deliver me, and it will become words on my lips. It will become to me a song. It will become to me a ministry, like Ephesians chapter 4, speaking the truth in love to others when you do this to me. God, turn me around and do through me what you did through Nathan. When Nathan came to me and spoke to me of my sin, as Matthew Henry says, the penitent should be preachers. We ought to take the salvation that God has given us, the restoration of joy, the, the remembering, the, the cleansing of blood over our sin, the, the glory of Jesus crucified for us, and take it to others and teach people. God is willing to forgive. He's willing to recreate. He's willing to cleanse our sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. But I think we often forget that when we come into prayer and when we come into the kingdom of God, it's not just so that we are saved from sin, but so we might be used in the kingdom. David's prayer doesn't end with, have mercy on me and save me for my sake. It ends with, have mercy on me, save me, and I will glorify you and teach others and help others, and I pray for the whole people of God. We've got to remember in our prayer to put Ephesians 10 in after Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Look with me in your Bibles really quickly to close in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 in the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You may have memorized Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 in VBS or in children's church or in the church growing up or even as an adult. But we've got to make sure 10 gets on there. It's very important. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It's very much like David. He knew that it was a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. And listen to what Paul says about us. We are his workmanship, created. Elohim, created. In Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. When you look at David's last section of his prayer in verse 13 through 19, there is one striking thing there. He has utterly forgotten himself. He's just not praying about himself anymore. He's turned from, God, I'm in trouble, have mercy on me, to, God, I'm thinking about other transgressors who need to hear this. I'm thinking about your glory, and I'm thinking about Jerusalem being at peace with you. Presence in the temple. Friends, if we walk into prayer for ourselves and leave only still thinking of ourselves, not having our hearts turned toward God, toward the praise of God, and toward the building up of others, we've not yet been rightly changed. Not yet. This is such an encouraging psalm. I would hope that you would find it tuned to your heart upon the realization of your sin. My prayer is that today you would hear this psalm and it would be like that song on the radio for you driving down the road, 
one of your favorite songs from the 90s or 70s or whatever decade your favorite songs are from comes on and you think, that's my song. That's my life song. That's the, oh, I just love it. The melody and, and the words and the tune and it all just says what I'm trying to say. How much more so at the very core of our being should we hear Psalm 51 and say, that's the prayer I want to pray. I need mercy, God. God, I've been in sin since the womb. God, forgive me. Blot that out. Use the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse me. Give me joy. Remind me of my salvation, Father. Help me teach others about your great salvation. Help me show the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected to others. And I pray for my church, Father. You see, there's the heart of prayer that is totally, wholly changed. And it's such a great joy to me to see the change David is praying for seems to happen in the psalm. Create in me a clean heart. Change me. Renew a right spirit within me. It seems by the end of the psalm, by the end of this very prayer, David's already thinking about something else. This is the power of Jesus Christ. This is the willingness of God to forgive us, to wipe away our sins with the blood of Jesus Christ crucified for us. What a great joy. What a great joy to have the Psalms instruct us on how to pray upon the realization of our sinful state. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace in all things particularly the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray for any here who today is struggling with sin, that you would help them see the heart of sin beneath the sins that they are struggling with, the, the heart of what it, maybe it is in gratitude, maybe it is forgotten the joy of salvation. I pray that you would help them see that today through David's prayer. Restore to us the joy of salvation. If there are some here today who have never believed in Jesus, who have never believed in a forgiving God, never believed that God can recreate I pray that today they will walk out with faith. They will walk out with newness of heart, knowing that you do. We love you, Father. We pray all this in your Son's name. Amen.